attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello, and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Corporal Captain Rob Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is General Jacob Hall. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Rob. How are you doing today? I am doing great. I am really honored uh, to have you on the show because, as uh, as I've said to you just off air, I have been reading your writing on uh, Slash Film for a long time, and I am a mega fan of the Slash Film Daily show that you do. I've listened to every single episode, even the segments that Peter does about magic. I mean, I listen to every bit of it. <laughs> so uh, I am just really thrilled to have you here. Yeah, I guess this will rob offline as well. I've been watching MASH for literally my entire life. It was probably my, my first favorite tv show so the moment someone called me up or dm'd me because this is the age of the internet and said you want to be on my mash podcast i'm like yeah let's, let's make this happen <laughs> it was i'm like a uh, i'm like a dog when he sees a squirrel for this stuff because you don't hear mash come up a whole lot nowadays because of course show's been off the air for 35 years and you know time marches on and then there was some episode that you guys were, were talking about hulu or i forget what it was subscription services and and someone said, "Oh, Jacob, are you going to get this?" And it, because it has this show, and you were like, "No," but and like, if they get Mash, I'd be interested. And I was like, "What?" You know, immediately <laughs> like, "Oh, okay." And then I, I think I wrote you that afternoon. So I love it when you know things like that just kind of come out of nowhere. So well, this, this leads in perfectly to what I want to ask you about is since you're this is your first time on the show, like, what is your history with the show? Uh, well. Growing up in San Antonio, Texas, you know, during the long, hot summers where, you, where you'd stay inside and not, and not uh, go outside in the blazing sun, <laughs> I would always turn to the TV because, you know, indoor kid as I was. And FX used to have, like, these massive MASH marathons. This is back before FX was really a prestige network, and it was just whatever they could get. And they would show, like, sometimes four-hour blocks of MASH every afternoon, and I would watch it, and my I learned that my... Mom used to watch it, and she's like, she encouraged me, like, you know, this is a really good show. You should keep watching it. So I'd watch it, episodes out of order on FX for like an entire summer, and then very shortly after that is when the first season hit DVD, and I started buying up the DVDs as they would come out. And I remember just a combination of FX, a combination of DVDs, and as something I will talk about when we talk about this episode, I always preferred the DVDs because you could turn off the laugh tracks on the DVDs, <laughs> and I <laughs> right. think Mash is a much better show. Without the laugh track, but I'll go into that because I think this episode is a perfect example of that. But yeah, it was a combination of, you know, FX needing something to air, a hot Texas summer, and <laughs> me being at the age where I could finally, I think, appreciate, you know, a sitcom that had a little bit more to say than just having a joke. Interesting. I said you were obviously your mom figured you would be receptive because obviously it's it's not. I've I've talked about this on multiple episodes at this point that it doesn't it mash on on paper doesn't seem like the kind of show that a kid would like because it's all kind of internal drama there's not i mean it's it's certainly drab looking uh it's all about the the horrors of war and it's like what why would a kid and it's of course all these old-timey references because it's set in the 50s and yet uh, almost everyone i know that's i that's been on the show loved it as a kid it doesn't seem like it would have kid appeal but yet it did I think it's a combination of two things for me. One, which is that uh, Hawkeye is very cool. Right. Uh, yep. Because you, you're immediately on board with Hawkeye. Uh, but also Hawkeye has a conscience. And as somebody who, uh, growing up, 
followed the rules and was a it was a well behaved child. <laughs> I, I was simultaneously attracted to Hawkeye because he's breaking all the rules, but he's doing the right thing. And that was always something that was the combination of rebel and uh, conscience that I think really spoke to me and really offered me a gateway into the rest of the show. That makes a lot of sense. I, I had a previous guest who said that basically, you know, being at the four seven seven is like being in school. And, you know, Hawkeye is the bad kid who gets away with mousing off, mouthing off to the teacher. And you like that kid because you're like, I wish I could do that. But he gets away with it. So it, <laughs> it does make a whole lot of sense. So, well, that, that's fantastic. That's, uh, I love that combination of all those different things. And, yeah, this episode in particular is a really good one. But it's not an episode that gets, I think, mentioned in a lot of, like, best of lists. And I think there's some reasons for that. And we'll get into it. And the episode is For the Good of the Outfit. It's uh, from season two, of course, episode 28, original air date. October 6th, 1973, was written by Jerry Mayer and directed by Jackie Cooper. Uh, During a session in OR, Trapper and Hawkeye discover that most of the wounded are townspeople from the village of Taidong, which isn't near any military target. The nearest artillery unit is American. As Henry describes it, oops, Hawkeye and Trapper collect shell fragments and they discover they are, in fact, American-made. They write up a report after failing to get Frank to join them in the cause and send it to HQ, where the case is taken over by a major stoner. Stoner comes to the 477th and meets with Hawkeye and Trapper. Hawkeye is skeptical, even a little hostile, after it seems Stoner isn't all that gung-ho about prosecuting the case. Things look up when Stoner suggests that Frank, being the ranking surgeon, should have issued the report. Hatlips is, once again, disappointed in him. A week later, Trapper reads in Stars and Stripes that the Army has looked into the matter and concluded that Tai Dong was destroyed due to an enemy attack. They track Stoner down on the phone, and he acts surprised to put the story in the paper. He promises heads will roll, but Hawkeye's conclusion is that the Major happens to be the Korean distributor of Crepola. Hawkeye then decides to write his father, who was friends with the U.S. Senator, and owes his dad a favor. But he's outraged when he finds out that the letter never arrived. It was stopped on the way and confiscated by the Army. Hawkeye has a shouting match with Henry, and things get even worse when he, inf- he is informed that he is restricted. Not under arrest exactly, but restricted, as Henry pathetically tries to explain the difference. Henry then tries to calm Hawkeye down by showing him the Army's plans to rebuild Taidong, which will even include a soft ice cream stand. Hawkeye isn't satisfied. That's compensation, but not responsibility. Finally, General Clayton arrives at the unit and has a sit-down meeting with Hawkeye and Trapper. He informs them, as gently as possible that the army is none too pleased about all this boat rocking. And if they don't knock it off, they could find themselves shipped to a unit right on the front lines and have their post-war lives shadowed by the army, which, as Clayton suggests, has very long arms. When he tells them that Stoner has been transferred to Honolulu, Hawkeye and Trapper know it's all over. As Hawkeye says to Clayton, you buried the evidence, you got rid of the guy who knew the evidence, and if we don't knock this off, you'll take away our breathing privileges. As they storm out, Frank and Hotlips charge in with a report and evidence of their own. Frank is hoping maybe a promotion or a result, but Hawkeye and Trapper are thrilled anyway. Clayton, realizing he can't bury this much evidence, admits that sometimes even the Army has to take its lumps. Hawkeye and Trapper say they're going to hold on to the evidence until they see the story, the right one, in Stars and Stripes. Clayton agrees, and they says if they write the story, he'll see that it gets printed. Hawkeye and Trapper, overjoyed, chase Frank and Hotlips around the office looking to plant big smooches on both of them. So, all right, Jacob, uh, why did you want to talk about this one in particular? This one... <clears throat> As you said, it may not be a classic episode, but I think it represents uh, the two divergent ends of what MASH was and what it became, which is it's trying very hard to balance being a very funny sitcom that families can watch, while at the same time really analyzing the 
bureaucracy of, of war, the horrors of war, and the sins of the United States military. And it's trying to do all of this while, you know, while making sure that there is enough laughs to keep the laugh track going, which leads to some awkward moments when you, when you rewatch it now because there's these very dramatic scenes with the, where the laugh track just bursts in. And I'm not sure what, uh, where the consensus is with fans, but I've always been a bigger fan of the later half of the show. I've always preferred it when it leaned into the drama and uh, let the comedy sort of accentuate dramatic moments. So this episode feels like the show really stretching in a way that in, in later seasons, I think they have a firmer grasp of, but here it is almost, it's almost experimental. Uh, it's, it's a show playing around with how far it can go. How, how can it build a farcical comedy plot around civilians being shelled by the United States military? And I, I and this is a case where I think that the drama, the scenes where uh, or Hawkeye and, and, and Trapper and Henry are you know you know having serious discussions about how far should this go. Uh, when do we stop? You know, when do we call it quits? Um, how do we uh, how do we make this right? Those scenes are more effective than you know the bumbling around and the, and the wise cracks. Not to say those aren't funny, but they feel like they've been wedged in because they need to be there as opposed because they come naturally. And for some people, this may make it a weaker episode, but for me, it just makes it incredibly interesting because it is mash. Uh, really searching for the voice that I think it perfects and like maybe turns into a finely tuned machine in a few seasons from now. What do you think about this? Am I on the right track here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I, I like about this episode and you talk about that it's stretching is that it, I think this, this episode has one of the darkest scenes MASH ever did. And, and I don't mean to jump down to the end of it already because we'll, we'll go back and forth. But the scene in – I mean, of course, obviously the, the whole idea that the, the American military bombed civilians is already kind of dark. And that is something that we unfortunately in our history have done. Uh, in wars. We have done that, and a lot of people don't want to kind of admit that, that we're always the good guys, but we have done things like that, and so that's taken right out of uh, real life, that, that this could happen. But the scene later on in Henry's office, where General Clayton comes by and basically tells them both, hey, you two, knock it off, or we are going to make your lives miserable, it's really startling, because to this point, the General Clayton character, played by Herb Volan, who... He was sort of a classic boss, you know, kind of uh, – he was, he was the guy that, you know, obviously you can't upset him too bad because he's a general. But he was kind of avuncular and he sort of let Hawkeye or Trapper or Henry get away with things. But here, he's really dark because he's saying to these guys, we're not just going to – I mean, we could send you to the front lines as revenge and we could ruin the rest of your lives. That's – I mean, this episode aired right in the heart of Watergate. And here you go. You've got this government figure – doing something very extracurricular in a very bad way. I mean, he's telling these two doctors, we'll, we'll silence you, maybe even end your lives unless you knock this off. And it's, it's, you're like, wow, what a turn for this character. And it's, it, to this point, I think the military is always presented as kind of bumbling, uh, certainly destructive in, in its own ways, but never this kind of, I don't know, like, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like uh, malicious. Malicious, yes. I mean, and that it's, so that scene is really amazing, and I think it took the show a lot of guts to present it in such a way. Yeah, and the Watergate thing is, I, I, I guess I hadn't put two together, but you're right. And the thing about Watergate, though, is it has such a messy ending that we we felt the ramifications of that even to today. I mean, with President Ford pardoning Nixon, that, that never had a 
a clean ending that you know Americans felt good about. Nobody felt good when when Watergate cleared. The dust never quite settled. Uh, whereas Mash feels compelled to you know. Uh, general realizes there's more evidence and he admits defeat and he walks away and we're to assume that you know the good guys won i feel like you know if this was season nine of mash i feel like uh hawkeye and trapper would have failed and they had to be forced to live with having failed but if this is a season two i they, they definitely have to tack on that happy ending which doesn't sit entirely well with me uh but i understand this is a very different show at this point in its history yeah, I mean, there were still. I mean, at this point, the show had just started in its new time slot after All in the Family, and it was picking up audience. I mean, again, just even to present this to that new audience, I thought was pretty gutsy. But yeah, it does have a, the the, the it is does have a happy ending, and maybe it's a little on the tacked on side. But I like that it's done. The happy ending comes about for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. done because Burns wants a promotion. I just, I like he, you know, he's totally pro America. America is completely right in every way. I don't knock every team, any team I'm on, but then he's willing to do it because it might make him Colonel Burns. And of course, it's that's a very sort of cynical or mash attitude of like, yeah, things get done. Eventually, the right thing happens, but it's not for the right reason, which is, you know, like, okay, typical Burns. Even before I watched MASH, uh, my mother, who's a retired Air Force uh, lieutenant colonel, uh, would always use – we we'll always use Burns as an example of the kind of bad soldier, the kind of person who you, you don't want to be in the army. And I remember growing up, even before – it took me years to figure it out, uh, but she'd always make references to, to things Burns did in episodes uh, as that's how you not – that's how you not be a soldier. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. It's it, it really is terrifying how ahead of the curve they were. I mean – Frank Burns, we know Frank Burns is today. You know, there are Frank Burns is going. I, I've said this on other shows, but like if Frank Burns was a real guy today, he would have a show on Fox News. I oh, mean, for he sure. Would totally be at 10 o'clock every night to going on and on. I mean, he's that kind of guy. Uh, and, and so and I, I like that it pits them against each other. Um, it's, it again, the, the, the whole idea that, you know, the Army. Why can't the army take responsibility for what they're doing? I mean, I look, I mean, I know what they did was pretty bad, but they did just make a mistake, a mistake. There's, you know, it's literally the fog of war. That's what happens. But this whole notion of no, 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 we were always right 100 percent of the time. That's it's it seems like such a sort of childish way to go through life of like, look, you know, Hawkeye and Trapper aren't saying this whole thing needs to be torn down. They're just saying just take responsibility for what you guys did. That's all. Yeah, it, it's funny that um, we're recording this in the exact on the same weekend that Jordan Peele's Us in theaters. Because it's a horror film where one of the themes of that movie is America's unwillingness to recognize shades of gray, and they must label everything as good or evil. And the American military in in this episode of Mash, their their attempt to only be the good guy is just it's classic America. I mean, it has to be us versus them. It has to be. Uh, good, good and evil. There is no such thing as a mistake, and to admit as such is a sign of weakness. And that's what I love about uh, Hawkeye and Trapper and, and other members of the cast who you know who later show up, which is the idea that yes, we can. Uh, the idea of being an American isn't being the strongest or being the most perfect. It is the one who's willing to acknowledge our faults, willing to uh, confess our sins, and willing to cry and willing to you know. Um, Acknowledge, hey, no, nothing's perfect. We we messed up. We can. Uh, how can we fix this? Yeah, 
Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about this character, the Major Stoner, who shows up. He's played by the actor named Frank Aletter, uh, who had a lot of TV credits. He was on Quincy, Chips, Three's Company, Hello, Larry, with McLean Stevenson, Bionic Woman, Marcus Welby, The Banana Splits Hour, <laughs> Mod Squad. And he was in a movie called David Cassidy, Man Undercover, which just sounds fantastic. Um, do you get the sense that Major Stoner is, in, is on the up and up? Or and, and Clayton got to him, or do you think that the fix is in from the beginning and Stoner is sort of BSing Hawkeye and Trapper from the beginning? I was wondering the same thing because is him being stationed in Honolulu a reward or is it his punishment? You right, know, like, yeah. Uh, and I would like to think that he's being honest because um, – because uh, a letter plays him as being this very straight and narrow guy who seems to be honest, but you know he could be BSing for all we know. Uh, but – in the second phone call, he seems genuinely surprised uh, that Stars and Stripes has printed in uh, uh, an incorrect story. So my reading of this is that they met an honest guy, and the honest guy was pushed to the side. But, you know, it's interesting that they don't play off that. They keep it in a shade of gray. What do you think? Because I, I, I do think that he is probably on the up and up. Yeah, I think probably. I mean, they said that scene where he talks to Hawkeye and he says, I promise you, heads will roll. That He seems like he's BSing Hawkeye at that point. So I feel like in the opening scenes where he comes to the unit and he's talking to Henry and there's the whole <laughs> – there's that whole run about, you know, are you cleared to hear this? And he's like, yeah, so who cleared you? Well, Corporal O'Reilly cleared me. <laughs> who cleared him? Well, I cleared. I cleared him. We cleared each other. <laughs> He's as clear as mother's milk. In the beginning, yeah, I think Stoner is probably genuinely looking to get to the bottom of it, and then I get the sense, and this is all happens off screen, which to me makes it very, you know, paranoid. And all the president's many is that he probably investigates. He finds out what the army did. He hands that over to Clayton, and then Clayton is like, "No, no, 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 no. We can't let that come out." And that's really what happened. That's the the. The read I got, and then that that second scene later on, where Hawkeye and Trapper say to Clayton, "Well, Stoner has all the evidence," and Clayton pretends like he doesn't even know who Stoner is. He's like Stoner, Stoner, and he's like kind of pretending, oh, "Who's that guy?" And he's like, "Oh yes, he's doing work for us in in Honolulu." And the way that Major Stoner just disappears is almost kind of like uh, you know, like something in, from from Russia. You know, like we make people just disappear. And he's just gone. I mean, he said mentions that he's in Honolulu, which again, if that's a punishment, I'll take that as your as the punishment to be moved out of Korea and sent to Honolulu. But yeah, it does have that real weird tone to it. And so you figure that, that on some level, the army is maybe trying to do the right thing, and then but they have their limits. You know, yeah. they just have their limits of what they're willing to accept. Yeah, and, and, and Mash gets a lot of bureauc- gets a lot of uh, mileage out of making fun of our army bureaucracy. And what I like about this episode, I think that one of the most more chilling things about it. Is that it proves that you know once you get through all the, all the mind-numbing paperwork with all the really idiotic names that make it all very confusing, at the end of the day, there are people powerful enough to just you know completely cut through that. And you know, no matter in the bureaucracy itself is silly, but the people at the very very top, you know, they don't answer to that. So it, all the little folks, all you know, all the doctors is at, at 4077th, They can only fight by filing forms, whereas people up top can just send you to Honolulu. Yeah. Yeah, and and you get the sense again how much Clayton is willing to step in on this matter, that he allows Hawkeye and Trapper to be rebellious within a certain limit. You know, like they can get away with certain things, but uh, like after a while, he will clamp down on them, and that's kind of a frightening thought. That you know, these guys are really yeah, they're valuable to the army because they're such good surgeons. But Clayton has his limits, and when if he has to really do something like threaten them, 
he's going to. And that's really sort of really terrifying. And one of the details of this episode that is uh, – and this is something I, I we sort of been keeping track of on the show is, of course, we all know that Wayne Rogers left – after the third season, because he grew dissatisfied that his character was so pushed to the side uh, in favor of, of Alan Alda and Hawkeye. And, you know, Alan Alda was a major creative force, uh, and he's been that way his whole life. And so you could sort of naturally see that he just really grabbed this part and ran with it and, of course, went behind the scenes. And this is an episode where that really happens, because in the beginning, it's Hawkeye and Trapper that are issuing the reports, that are fighting this fight, and then... All of the really heavy stuff seems to fall on Hawkeye. His letters get censored. Uh, they threaten him. It's almost like put Trapper, they just forget that Trapper's in on it too. And I would imagine if you're Wayne Rogers, you're like, hey, what, well, they would, you know, why don't I get threatened? Why is it all, why is it all <laughs> Hawkeye? And that's a shame because it's, you know, they, these guys are partners in this. I mean, Radar even says that at one point. He's like, well, you guys are going to file this together? And they're, you know, they're supporting each other because they believe in this. And yet it really, there's the scene later on where Hawkeye's talking to Major Stoner and he's in the foreground and Trapper is in the background out of focus, which I have to think is an accidental, you know, visual representation of how, He's just sort of shunted aside in this story. Yeah, it's – I always forget that early on uh, Tra- Trapper really is just Hawkeye's sidekick, and it, it, I, he very rarely gets his own storylines. And you know, I don't blame him for leaving the show, and I think, I think the show gets better once, he, once he's gone, and maybe it's controversial opinion. I'm not so sure at this point, <laughs> um, but I feel like uh, one of the uh, flaws maybe of these early seasons is that Trapper and Hawkeye are – way too similar of characters and that Alnalda is just the stronger force both on screen and off screen. So the show tends to gravitate toward them. I think only in season four with the direction of BJ does he meet the opposing force, uh, you know, the, who's, who's also gets along with, but someone who um, can help him grow as opposed to someone who keeps him in the same cycle in the same circle. So yeah, this, this episode is a perfect example of, of the Hawkeye Pierce show with Trapper as opposed to the ensemble that I think it really evolves into. Yeah, I mean, I have grown to have a greater appreciation for Wayne Rogers and the character as we've been going on, but I will say BJ is my favorite character of MASH, period. So, uh, I mean, I I agree. I think the show got better once he got out because of that contrast, because you just had a stronger contrast between the two characters. Um, By the way, the scene, (laughs) I, I looked this up when I was doing research for this episode, the scene where Hawkeye is talking to Major Stoner, and he's talking about the story in, in Stars and Stripes, and he says, uh, uh, Hawkeye says, we'll send this to you after you read our story in Stars and Stripes, and Trapper says, page one this time. And Hawkeye says, yeah, not back on page 14 under pro station addresses. I never knew what a pro station was. I just, I, I, I don't know, I never understood it, and I just let it roll. Do you, uh, I, I looked it up. Do you have an idea what a pro station is, Jacob, before I uh, say it? I just flew over my head, too. Go for it. They are VD clinics. <laughs> okay. that's that's what a pro station is they are the apparently the army opened up these little little centers where soldiers if they realized that they had come down with a venereal disease could go and get a cure or get their shots and so that's what a pro station <laughs> is and i was like I, all these years what's it's a really filthy joke and i've never known it well, that brings the number of vd jokes in this episode too because hawkeye also has a joke where, where our radar approaches him with, with a problem and hawkeye uh makes fun of him for <clears throat> Act like he has a problem below the belt. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I never realized. I mean, it's. I always figured. I, I feel. I sound dumb 
I hear myself sounding dumb when I say I always thought it was like a gas station, like a pro station. I just thought it sounds like okay, and I thought that was the joke is that for some reason Stars and Stripes is bothering to like list gas station openings, like what, like like it's so meaningless. That's why the story is buried. But pro station is even better. It's just such an old timey reference. I mean, good lord! I mean, what a what a crazy thing to um, to have that to these little these little areas where you could just go get your get your shot, get your insulin or your whatever your penicillin or whatever it is that you needed. So. Um, I did mention this episode was written by Jerry Mayer. He wrote one other mash called the the Ring Banger from season one. That's the one with uh, Leslie Nielsen. He worked on Mary Tyler Moore, the Bob Newhart show. He developed the Facts of Life, uh, so I guess he made money off that for the rest of his life. He worked on the Bewitch and the Jonathan Winter show. This is it for him. He never did another mash, which is a shame because this is a really I think beautifully written episode. I don't know why he was not invited back to do more. Uh, yeah, I, I can. I always look at these old TV credits and see people jumping around these classic shows, you know, and these days you tend to see writers stick with a show for years and years and years, I think, because of job security. Uh, yeah. Yep. But like, as you point out, those guys seem like he was in demand. So my guess is, you know, MASH paid some bills and he had other opportunities. Yeah. Like I said, I hope he got the – if he developed Facts of Life and that show ran for like, what, 10 years? I'm guessing he got Facts of Life money the rest of his life. So good for him. You know, <laughs> It's always happy when you – if you create a show that goes on for 10 years, you deserve to make some money in perpetuity from it. Um, the other uh, – well, one thing I would mention there, of course, there is no Klinger or Father Mulcahy in this episode at all. They don't appear at all uh, because the plot is so so focused. I think they have so much to kind of get to in this 22 minutes that they don't need these extraneous characters for now. Um, and as as serious as this episode is, and we've been talking about kind of the heavier aspects, it's very funny. It's a very, very funny episode. I mean, when Clayton shows up and uh, Henry is drunk, I love all of that stuff as this really heavy conversation is going on. And Henry is just sauced out of his mind. And he's just talking to them <laughs> about bringing the drinks and all that stuff. And there's even that great line about where Henry's like, uh, is there, Henry asks, is like, is there enough uh, sherry in your glass? And Trapper says, just bring the check. You know, <laughs> he's just, Henry is completely extraneous to this conversation. I love it. Yeah, it's a very, very simple joke. But when the general calls for his driver and, and Henry grabs a golf club, it, it's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> It is a it is a very 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 good Henry joke, which I he's the equivalent of a Walking Dad joke. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, McLean Stevenson was a great drunk. I think he was a particularly him and uh, uh, Loretta Swit. I think did really great drunk characters. They they were just excel. It's it's not always the easiest thing to do, but I thought they really uh, excelled at it. And I said, I Henry's great. McLean Stevenson was great at sort of stunned, you know, like just kind of like out of his, you know, like, oh, what? what's going on? I mean, when he meets Stoner for the first time, it's when Radar wakes him up and he's got those eye patches that, you know, he uses to sleep with. And he even says something like, this is some, someone of a frightening honor. Like he's just sort of <laughs> gibbering because he has no idea what he's talking about. So um, do you have a particular favorite, now that we're talking about this sort of the funny part, do you have a particular favorite joke from this episode? Uh, my favorite part, and it, it's because it's just really, really, uh, tidy sitcom farce writing in a way that I, I, I found incredibly pleasing and, uh, and satisfying was at the very end when uh, Houlihan and Frank burst into the office uh, with the extra evidence demanding that they be uh, that Frank be part of the investigation because they want the promotion and uh, Hawkeye and Trapper start cheering him on and like, and like leading the charge with him and the, the misread of the situation where, where everybody there's three different sides in that room all reading the situation entirely differently and all of them are uh, reacting differently. It's just, 
Neil Simon-esque in how the very, very traditional comedic threads all tie together in one way that is both tidy but also incredibly satisfying. Yeah, it's a, that is, again, I, it's a great way of working uh, Frank Hotlips into the story. I, I do love that earlier moment where he, she says to them, why didn't you let him sign the report? And they're like, let him? We begged him. And then they walk out of the office, and, and Margaret looks at Frank kind of disappointed. And he's like, well, how do I know what the right thing is? <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's Frank Burns, all right. Uh, my favorite joke, actually, is not even really connected to the story. And this could have been a joke they worked in any episode, but they put it in here. Is where Frank walks into the swamp, and he just pauses and looks around at the disgusting condition of the tent. And he says, really, to kind of no one in particular, pig pen, brothel. And Hawkeye and Trapper, without even looking up, just go, here, sir, yo, and they just take that as their names. I absolutely love jokes where someone is insulting somebody and that person just takes it and runs with it. And I just love – I just laugh at that every single time of just they're, – they've they're got their face buried in the Taidong paperwork and they don't even bother to you know look up. They just – here, sir, yo, like – <laughs> just I love Frank's not going to get anywhere with this insult. So yeah, I mean this this I, I said I think this is a tremendous episode. It leans very heavily into the dramatics, as you said, Jacob, which they would get better at as as they were on. But I mean, just the I will net this this scenes of General Clayton leaning forward and kind of leaning on these guys, and it, I think it was sort of interesting. And in the very next episode. Dr. Pierce and Mr. Hyde, that's it for General Clayton. They got rid of him after that. They would have rotating generals throughout the show. Uh, Herb Volan lasted the longest. I think he racked up the most appearances. But I almost wonder at this point, like, can we keep using this guy? Like, he, now he seems like a heavy. I mean, he's really <laughs> scary when he leans into the two guys and he's like, you know, you guys could find yourself uh, reassigned to an aid station. You know, and he's like, and then he even says, I'm getting pressure from above. And you're like, oh boy, you know, yeah. like, who is, is it? Is it Eisenhower? Like, what's going on? It's probably, <laughs> probably Vice President Nixon. But uh, yeah, so I think this is a, a really great episode. I don't think it gets its proper due. And so I'm really thrilled that you wanted to talk about this one because I said, I, th- I think it's just a, it's a, it's an early season winner. Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about the, that this is uh, Clayton's final episode because I guess I hadn't realized that. And it makes me realize uh, just how in later seasons, especially going forward, the, the rotating cast of superiors really lends the show an even stronger sense of things being out of control. There's there's no constant. There's no there's no there's no friendly faces when things come down from above. It's a stranger, which makes the four seven seven feel like even more of a community because they got to band together because everything outside is just this unfamiliar mess of people who may or not mean the best for them. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of like sort of subtext going on that the show didn't really necessarily have time to delve into because they're worried about the plots and just getting the regular sort of storylines going for all the characters. But it always has that backdrop to it. And I said, that's why I think this is a really great episode. And that's one of the, the joys of doing this podcast. I mean, obviously, I just love MASH and I love talking about it with other people. But I like everyone knows the more famous ones. Everyone knows the one where Henry is killed. You know, spoiler alert, uh, or the you know the dreams one, or whatever the more famous ones. But there are these other ones that are real, real winners, and I'm glad we had a chance to sort of highlight it so so uh, so forcefully, kind of. Because I said I think this is a really a really good episode. So, well, Jacob, I think that is going to do it for uh, for the good of the outfit. Uh, like I said, I am really honored that you would do the show because I am a huge huge fan of yours. And like I said, I'm a super fan of Slash Film Daily, and so I'm just I'm just so thrilled I got a chance to talk to you. Oh, I always, this was excellent. Like, when you invited me on this show, I did not know what to expect, but this was a very fun conversation, and feel free to invite me back anytime. 
Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely have you back for at very least the BJ years, so we could talk about BJ because uh, you know we love that character. And I, I will tell you this while, while we're while we're here, I know that you have had a chance to interview a great many. Uh, you know, writers, directors, and actors as part of your job. I mean, you talked to Jordan Peele on the, during the Us tour. And I will mention last year, through a mutual friend, I got to sort of talk to Mike Farrell, which was like one of the greatest thrills of my life because it was like, oh, wow. he's, BJ, he's BJ Honeycutt. You know what I mean? It was just <laughs> like, it meant more to me. that I've, I've met some other famous people in my time, but very little has meant more to me knowing that Mike Farrell like knows who I am and knows I'm a MASH fan. You know, it's oh, just wow. incredibly rewarding. That is so cool. I, I, I've never met anybody involved in MASH. So that, oh. you, you're, you're one up in me there. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Oh, on the managing editor at slash film.com. So I, I'm running the ship over there. And so you see me writing and also, you know, organizing the content on that site. Or I'm on Twitter if that's your thing. Or my handle is at Jacob S. Hall. Absolutely. And tell everybody your avatar. I love your avatar on Twitter because it's, it's, you have to be a real movie fan to know what that avatar is. Uh, it is uh, David Niven from A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, one of, probably my. In my top five favorite movies of all time, Criterion just released a Blu-ray of it uh, last year, and it is maybe the best movie that even classic classic film enthusiasts have not had a chance to see yet. It is a wonderful movie. We covered it over on my movie show, the Film and Water podcast, and it is a tremendous, tremendous movie. So I just that makes me smile every time I see your your avatar pop up and I see David Niven with his with his uh, goggles on and whatever. It's just it's just fantastic. So uh, again, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. And so of course, everybody, if you want to listen to back episodes of the show, you can subscribe and listen to them over on iTunes or on Stitcher or go to the network, which is FireAndWaterPodcast.com. And we're always talking Mash over on Twitter, which is at Mash477Cast. So thanks everybody for listening, and until next week. That is all. getting double talk and triplicate unanswered calls i've seen the plans for the rebuilding general censored mail inside toilets soft ice cream makes you feel the whole war is worthwhile hope that's okay mm -hmm. a little more ginger ale look that's fine just bring the check